This is Brandon M. Crooker, and you're listening to the Apostolic Theory Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We have Pastor Kelly Nix. Uh, He wrote a book called Theology for the Rest of Us, um, and I've read it. Uh, I've read it several times. It's a tremendous resource for anybody uh, who's wondering about apostolic theology. Um, and it, it is really broken down um, in this book in a way that, that just it's easy to understand language. It's, it's laid out. Uh, and then, like I said, it's a tremendous resource. So today we have Pastor Kelly Nix with us. How are you doing, Pastor Kelly? I'm well. How are you, sir? Doing fantastic. Really looking forward to this podcast episode today. Uh, so why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your ministry, where you pastor, and what God is doing. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me on, and it's kind of hard to follow up after such a glowing review of my book, but I'll try not to disappoint here. Um, I was born and raised in uh, Lima, Peru. I was the son of missionaries uh, to the nation of Peru, and uh, lived in Peru until I was 12 years old, moved to Central America, lived in Costa Rica until I was 14. My family came back to the United States, and uh, I came with them, of course. My father started a home mission work in the Portland area in Oregon. Uh, Later, we moved to San Antonio, Texas, where he started another work. My three brothers and myself were all involved in ministry and, and helped him to get that work started. Uh, later, my wife and I pastored a small church uh, in San Antonio. It was a Trinitarian church when we took it, and uh, and they, they requested that we be their pastors, and so we uh, accepted, and the Lord blessed us, and within about three months, it was no longer a Trinitarian church. It was a oneness church. It no longer being a Trinitarian church. Okay. All right. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of repeat that a little bit. I assume you can splice out what you don't need. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So my wife and I uh, took the pastor of a small church in San Antonio when we were first married. It was a Trinitarian church when we accepted the pastorate. Uh, they asked us to be their pastor knowing that we were, were apostolic, and God helped us within uh, two or three months. That church was no longer Trinitarian. It was an apostolic church. Uh, following that, my wife and I went to the nation of Brazil, where we worked as missionaries for a while. Came back from Brazil, we located in the Kansas City, Missouri area, pastored up there for several years. Uh, in 2008, the Lord impressed upon us to move back to San Antonio and to plant a new church. And uh, that's where we are today, uh, almost 13 years later, uh, pastoring Alamo City Apostolic Church here in San Antonio. That is, that is incredible. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about the book that I mentioned, Theology for the Rest of Us. Where, what made you feel to write that that resource, that book? Well, it was kind of a long story. I, I worked in, uh, in a Bible college setting for uh, many years. Uh, back in 2006, we opened a Bible college that we operate online called the Institute of Conservative Apostolic Theology. Um, in building the curriculum for that college, I was looking around, uh, for some good apostolic resources on theology. 
and and I realized that uh, we don't really have a whole lot available in the form of systematic apostolic theology resources. Uh, Brother David Bernard is a, a friend of mine from many years ago, and he has done a tremendous job of writing uh, many, many books on uh, apostolic doctrine. Um, but what I was really looking for was something along the lines of Meyer Perlman's uh, Through the Bible book uh, that, that touches on all of the major doctrines of the Bible. Of course, he is a, uh, or was a Trinitarian author, and so I was looking for something with, uh, with a more biblical flavor to it, and uh, just really couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. Uh, I didn't write the book immediately after understanding the need for it. Uh, actually, several years went by, uh, and I began to teach a series here in our church on uh, the oneness of God, but going much more in-depth than, than we ever had before. That series that I taught turned into uh, the book Theology for the Rest of Us. And uh, I know Brother Nathaniel Wilson has also written some tremendous materials, and I, I've chuckled with him about this. Uh, I told him uh, a couple of three years ago uh, that his uh, latest book on apostolic theology uh, had actually inspired the title for my book, because uh, if you've ever read uh, Elder Wilson's books, then you know that he writes at a very intellectual level. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I, I read his books and, and uh, uh, actually taught uh, on the staff of the Bible College that he founded, and so I taught from some of his books. And I figured we, we needed uh, something more on the level of people like me. So... <laughs> Uh, I, I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek named the book Theology for the Rest of Us uh, based off of the fact that uh, uh, Elder Wilson's book is a tremendous read, but it is a deep, rich, and thought-provoking read. I was looking for something a little more in the vernacular. Right. Uh, so so that's, that's kind of where Theology for the Rest of Us was born. And you'll notice that uh, I don't really reference the term apostolic very much in the book at all. Right. And that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is that I sell the book on Amazon, and I don't want Trinitarian readers not buying the book just because they perceive that it's just a, a, a oneness book and they automatically reject it. Mm. I want them to be able to buy the book if they're hungry to know what the Bible says, not what apostolics say. Right. Uh, the second thing is that... Uh, and, and I want to qualify what I say here so that I, no one misunderstands me, but the Bible doesn't teach apostolic doctrine. Whether apostolics should teach Bible doctrine. Mm. And if we if we build the book to support our doctrinal views, then we're going to put ourselves in danger of, of uh, maybe unintentionally twisting what the Bible says to fit our views. If we structure our views to fit what the Bible says, we're on much safer ground. And so I just prefer to... Uh, to study the Bible as the Bible, and as an apostolic, to discipline myself to make sure that what I believe is biblical, and uh, rather than trying to fit the Bible to what I believe. Mm. That's that's tremendous. So let's go ahead and, and, and move forward, and let's talk about why theology is important. That is a tremendous subject, and I'm I'm so. Uh, 
excited that, that we're talking about this because uh, I would admit to you that in the early years of my life, my ministry, I, I had kind of an anti-theology bias um, for good reasons. I, I just felt like, you know, all we need is just, just the Bible, read the Bible and pray and get the anointing and that's all you're going to need. And there's absolutely nothing that can replace reading the Bible or getting the anointing. We need both of those things. But uh, over the course of getting close on 40 years of ministry now, I've realized that uh, we do need study and we need deep study. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, theology, of course, I'm sure that, that uh, most, if not all of our listeners understand the term theology, uh, theology but just in case, uh, let me just define it. Theology is the study of God, plain and simple. Uh, theos being God, ology being the study of. Um, and there's a difference between just reading about God or even lightly studying the Bible and really dedicating ourselves to the subject of theology, uh, which is trying to understand the God of the Bible. When we understand the God of the Bible, then the Bible makes even more sense. Um, and let me just, just put a, a kind of a uh, caveat out here. Um, one of the reasons that I had some inherent bias against studying theology as a younger minister uh, was because um, I felt like Trinitarians dominated the field of theology. And I felt like they were uh, the ones who were making all the rules for theology and, and uh, determining what should be considered theological study. And, and let me just put a disclaimer here. I am not a theologian. Uh, most professional theologians would would uh, not even give me the time of day. Uh, so I don't I don't pretend to be a theologian, but I, I am a student of the Word of God, and I am a student of theology. Um, and, and I realized over time, we are not obligated to allow Trinitarians to define the rules for theology. We're not obligated to study theology in, in the same way that they do. We don't have to be pressed under their mold. Uh, but what we should what we should be doing is ensuring that the theology we are studying is relevant, and by that I mean that it's important in the framework of the Word of God, and that it's practical, that it's really helping us to fulfill the Great Commission, not just helping us to uh, to feel wiser or, or more important. So uh, our study should be practical theology. It should be theology that helps us to be better workers in the kingdom of God. Um, there's a scripture that I go to uh, that I, I believe is very closely related to the study of theology, and if it's okay, I'm going to go ahead and read that scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, comes out of Second Peter chapter three, it's verses thirteen through eighteen. And Peter writes this: He said, "Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness." Wherefore, beloved, is seeing that you look for such things, and so he tells us that, that all of the rest of this is because we're looking for heaven, because our hope is in heaven. Uh, all of these other things are important because of that. Seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul also wrote, I'm sorry, our, our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, 
hath written unto you. And so here he's referencing Paul's writings directly. He is uh, he is confirming that Paul's writings were indeed inspired and were, and were given to him by God. Um, it says in verse number 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. And I don't mind at all admitting uh, to anybody that there are some things in Scripture that are hard to be understood. And I don't have all the answers to everything. There are, there are uh, Scriptures that still, to this day, after decades of studying the Word of God, that still are difficult for me to wrap my brain around. Um, so yes, there are things hard to be understood in the Scriptures, and those hard-to-be-understood areas are danger zones uh, for people who are not given to studying the Word of God. Uh, Peter said, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. And that literally means to twist or to wrench. Uh, to uh, uh, it, it comes from, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but it comes from uh, a term that means, it literally refers back to putting someone on a torture rack, back in medieval torture, and stretching them, wrenching them until uh, their joints come apart. Uh, that's what Peter is is uh, describing here when he talks about people who are unlearned and unstable, twisting or wrenching mm. the scriptures. Um, and I, I, I looked up those terms or those words, unlearned and unstable, to see if there was some deep theological meaning behind them. And there's not. They mean just just what they say: people who have not learned, and people who are unstable or unsteadfast. And, of course, an unsteadfastness comes from having a poor foundation. Um, so, uh, he says, they that are unlearned and unstable twist or rest Paul's writings, as they do also the other scriptures. And here's the part that really worries me about that. He says, unto their own destruction. So, it lets me know that the study of the Word of God is important if I don't get the Word of God right. If I don't properly interpret the Word of God, it will be to my own destruction. Um, so he goes on to say, "Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness." So that's going back directly to the instability of those he he uh, described as resting the scriptures. Uh, we don't want to be led away from our own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge not just of the Bible, not just of the Word of God, but he's, he, he says here, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and that is the study of theology, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing Him better. Uh, to Him be both glory now and forever. Amen. So if you if you take uh, Peter's writings, and you, and you look at them in a little more modern translation, and for this illustration, I grabbed the New Living Translation. Uh, this is what he said in verse number 16. He said, speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. So uh, that passage, uh, among others, lets me know that it is vitally important that we take the study not only of the Word of God, but of the God of the Word of God seriously, so that we don't end up uh, twisting his letters, uh, speaking of, of course, Paul's letters here, but 
inspired by the Holy Ghost to mean something quite different. Um, and one of the ways that we can make sure we don't misinterpret someone's words is by knowing the person better. Uh, you can you can quote someone without knowing the person, and you can ascribe any meaning you want to their words. But when you know the person, uh, your knowledge of their character and, and, and their way of thinking uh, determines how you interpret their words. And uh, and I think it's vitally important that we know the God of the Bible, and not just the word of the God of the Bible. Uh, those two have to go together very very closely. Uh, some of the uh, some of the most common errors in uh, uh, biblical study, uh, I say some of, uh, one of the most common errors would be what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis being the uh, the opposite of exegesis, where exegesis is drawing the meaning out of the text. Eisegesis is inserting our own meaning into the text and forcing the Bible to support our points of view, coming to the Word of God with predetermined uh concepts uh, and prejudices um, and trying to make the Bible support what we believe. And so, again, the importance of theology is uh, getting to know the God of the Bible, understanding his word, and allowing ourselves to be instructed and informed by the word of God rather than trying to instruct and inform the word of God with our own preconceived notions. Um, The Bible speaks very favorably of one group of, uh, of individuals in the book of Acts, and that's the Bereans. And they received that favorable mention of the Bible because of their diligence in comparing what they heard preached by Paul and Silas to what was written in the scriptures. Uh, in Acts 17, verses 10 and 11, it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither uh, went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So they received the word, but they did not receive the word without caution. Uh, they received the word with question, um, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Uh, in the New Living Translation, it says they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And that word search, it comes from a Greek word, uh, anacrino, which means to investigate, examine, to inquire into, to scrutinize, to sift, or to question. Uh, These are all things that motivate uh, honest students of theology. We want to investigate, we want to examine, we want to inquire into, we want to scrutinize our own doctrines to make sure that our own doctrines are biblical and their content, to sift through and to question what we hear. And that's exactly what the Bereans were doing. So theology searches not only for doctrinal truths, but it seeks to determine why those truths are indeed truths. Um, There's a difference between, for example, uh, knowing the oneness of God and understanding the oneness of God. Uh, knowing the oneness of God can come simply through the knowledge of certain scriptures, and if we're not careful, proof texts. Understanding the oneness of God comes through uh, revelation, comes through enlightenment, enlightenment by the Spirit of God, 
Uh, and it causes those scriptures to come alive to where we not only understand that God is one, but we understand why God is one according to the scripture. Uh, so that's really, uh, really the end result of theology that was properly applied as an understanding of why truth is indeed truth. Through theology, we, we seek to understand the nature of the God of the Bible, because when we understand his nature and when we understand his character, that enlightens us as students to the rationale for God's commandments and precepts. Why did he command these things? Why did he state things the way he did? Why, why did he establish certain laws and principles? All of that, uh, the understanding of that comes from understanding his character and his nature of who he is. Um, another reason we need to uh, study theology as a discipline is because it impresses on us the need for, for systematic methods of study and, and for establishing rules of interpretation, hermeneutical rules, such as, uh, for example, the grammatical historical method of studying the Bible, where, uh, where we discipline ourselves to interpret everything through two lenses. One is the lens of, of the text of the Scripture. What did the actual uh, uh, text mean grammatically? And uh, the other side of that coin being the historical filter. What what did that text mean to its original audience uh, when they first heard it? Because they were the first, the prime audience of that text. We are secondary uh, in studying it. And so uh, if we're not careful, we approach the scripture uh, uh, expecting the scripture to have more meaning for us 2,000 years later or, 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 or three or 4,000, depending on what part of the scripture we're reading than it had for them back then. That's, that's just not a, a healthy or sound way of looking at Scripture. Um, theology can convert comprehension of the Word of God because it encourages us as students to view uh, and understand the Bible as a, a unified and a cohesive whole, not just a random collection of stories and teachings. If we don't understand the God of the Bible, and his purpose in giving us the scripture, every part of the scripture, it can be very easy to read the Bible just as a library of 66 books by uh, 40 different writers, and uh, uh, they might have had some things in common, but we can't really expect there to be a, an unbroken thread from Genesis to Revelation. But if we read the Bible through a theological lens, understanding that the God of the Bible gave us his word as a revelation of himself, then we look for, for that cohesion in every part of the Bible. We understand that, that from the minor prophets to, to the Psalms to, to Revelation, uh, every part of the Bible is a part of God's revelation, and it's revealing truth about the central figure of the Bible, which is uh, God ultimately revealed in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Um, a lack of, of, of theological study presents uh, a lot of dangers in doctrinal interpretation and creating uh, unbiblical doctrines based on misunderstanding of the scripture. And the apostolic movement is not, sadly, is not free from, from the effects of, of a, a misunderstanding of scripture. There have been uh, a number of uh, false or at least mistaken teachings that have made their way through the apostolic movement over the years. And, and I, I, would venture to say that most of those were not uh, created. Most of those doctrines and teachers were not created out of a, uh, a malevolence or a, a desire to mislead. 
but they were birthed in an honest mis- misinterpretation of scripture based on a lack of knowledge of a the God of the scripture and b his revelation through his word. Um, and from a from a lack of of uh, proper importance being placed on uh, establishing and respecting sound methods of biblical interpretation. So, uh, kind of to wrap up my observations on this, uh, there are a lot of misperceptions among apostles today on things even as, as essential as the person of Jesus Christ and his sonship. Uh, I've experienced it many times when teaching on uh, the oneness of God. Uh, when we get into the sonship of Jesus Christ, a lot of folks just tighten up because a lot of apostolics are not comfortable thinking of Jesus as the Son of God because they feel like that somehow does damage to the doctrine of the oneness of God. And, and it doesn't. It's, it's a, a biblical doctrine, and it, it's a, a, a critically important part of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can't shy away from those things. Rather, we should approach them through a proper, sound theological study and, and disciplining ourselves to use proper methods of biblical interpretation. If we don't, um, the misperceptions that, that arise among apostolics of the Word of God and, and uh, uh, of the doctrines of the Scripture can rightfully earn us a reputation for being uh, poor interpreters of the Bible, uh, for being propagators of unsound doctrine, and uh, uh, even, uh, to use the term carefully, uh, birthing heresies. Uh, because uh, being apostolic does not give us any license with the Word of God. We, we don't have any right to get the Bible wrong. We don't have any right to twist the Scripture just because we're apostolic. We must be the world's greatest examples of faithfulness to the Scriptures and to the Word of God uh, and and of, of proper theology. So just as a, as a last point here, um, one of Paul's most uh, controversial messages was preached in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill in Athens. Uh, and, and a lot of folks look at that message and they look at the conclusion of the message and the observation that he didn't make many converts or only made a handful of converts. And, and they call uh, that sermon from the Apostle Paul a failure. Um, when in reality... I think it was probably one of his greatest sermons and one of his greatest successes. Uh, we don't measure success by the number of people who were converted. We measure su- success by whether the message accomplished what God wanted it to accomplish. And uh, we have to bear in mind that Paul's audience on Mars Hill uh, was not an easy audience to persuade. He was teaching philosophers and he was teaching academics. And anyone who has dealt with uh, secular academics and with philosophers today knows that they are extremely difficult uh, to convince of the word of God and to convert. And so um, the fact that Paul actually did make some converts out of that audience of philosophers and academics uh, is a real success in my book. And, uh, And the only way that he accomplished that was through his advanced knowledge, and if I could use this term carefully, his his academic knowledge of the Word of God. Paul was probably uh, one of the few, if not the only, uh, of the apostles 
who could have engaged those hearers at that level. Um, and so uh, his preparation of the feet of Gamaliel, which is very, very evident when you read his writings, particularly the book of Romans and, and other epistles, uh, he thought at a different level. Uh, he understood at a different level. And, uh, and his academic preparation in the area of theology prepared him to do a job that probably no one else could have done. He reached only a few of those academics and philosophers, but to reach one uh, of that particular uh, group or sector is, in my opinion, revival. And so uh, uh, thank God for the Apostle Paul and for his, his dedication to the study of theology. But those are, those are my reasons, uh, in a nutshell, for believing that the study of theology is critically important for the apostolic church today. So what I feel is that you, the view of theology as Christians, we shouldn't shy away from it. We should be willing to embrace theology because, like you said, if we're studying the God that we serve through that, so through the entire scripture from the Old Testament to the New. There are different things that are revealed about God's nature, um, what God, you know, likes, things that he doesn't like. Um, and when we're actually taking the time to, it, it, and it's just like any other really relationship in our life. It's just an eternal relationship. And so in studying the word of God and in studying the character and the things of God through a lens of theology. And we're not allowing anything outside of what we read in Scripture and maybe our experiences with God change that theological view. That is correct. That is correct. And let me just uh, elaborate on that for a moment, if I can. Absolutely. Um, I, I think you phrased it very well there. Uh, the Scripture is our authority. Um, the Scripture is what what uh, determines doctrine. Um, and the Scripture is, is unassailable. Um, where theology and theological study comes uh, in handy, to use vernacular, uh, is in, in, in giving us insight into what we call authorial intent. Not only uh, the intent of the writers of the Bible, but the intent of the God who inspired the Bible. Um, again, knowing how he thinks, knowing how he operates. Um, those things can help us to, to gauge whether uh, our interpretation of the Scripture is reasonable. Um, if the way I'm interpreting Scripture goes against what we know about God, the revelation of God, uh, through uh, through the entire corpus of the Scriptures, then um, something's wrong with my interpretation. There are there are people today who speak in people who twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Let me just give you an example. Um. There is a great, uh, there's a groundswell of, uh, of 
theological support in today's world um, for uh, the justification of homosexuality. Uh, a lot of, of secular, or not secular, but of, of denominational churches have uh, their more liberal sectors have given themselves to the effort of trying to prove through the scriptures that homosexuality is acceptable for a Christian, that uh, that the Bible really doesn't frown on, on homosexuality. And they, and they seize on a few scriptures that they take out of context and that they twist um, to try to to support what they're what they're fighting for. Um, if you get into strictly a, a a debate on the textual side of things, they could grab a scripture here and there, perhaps, and maybe force it into their viewpoint. Um, but the real test of the matter is is the way that I'm interpreting the scripture consistent with the God of the Bible? Is the way I'm interpreting this one scripture consistent with the revelation of that God throughout the scriptures and what I've come to know about him by studying the entire body of the scripture and seeing how he has expressed himself over and over again in different ways uh, on a given subject. And, and when you put just to use that example, the, the, the effort to justify homosexuality from the scripture, when you put it to that test, it becomes glaringly evident that twisting one scripture, twisting the wording of one scripture to try to support my argument uh, is, is incongruous with the God of the Bible because that's not how he has revealed himself nor expressed himself throughout the entire scripture. And so that helps us as a guideline to help us to avoid uh, taking scriptures out of context and, and ascribing to them a meaning other than what God intended because we know enough about him from studying theology that we know that's not how he thinks, how he operates, or what he stands for. Absolutely. Well, so when you were, and I, I don't know where this will go, but uh, I guess we'll just see. Um, you were talking about how, you know, there are some, you know, denominations that are trying to uh, promote uh, things that just are not godly. And that, I wouldn't even say that that is specifically, you know, homosexuality. That That's really a lot of other things, uh, you know, uh, adultery and, and uh, uh, you know, alcoholism. And, and, and they promote it and they say that it's fine, you know. And, and then we have other doctrines like eternal security. And, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved, which, I mean, we can read on multiple occasions where uh, if you're actually reading reading it as it is, it com- becomes very clear that that is not the reality of it. Um, so, for instance, let's say, you know, what, and because, you know, we're talking about homosexuality specifically, um, Sodom and Gomorrah. What is it about Sodom and Gomorrah that God decided that they needed to be removed from the face of the earth as opposed to, say, Nineveh, where God sent Jonah to preach to them repentance? Let's just talk about let's let's, let's talk about that for just a minute, and and I just want to see what you think about that. Absolutely, and and I will. uh... I will 
qualify what I'm going to say to you by saying that uh, uh, I'm going to be giving my opinion, uh, hopefully influenced by theology. But when we're looking back into some of these uh, ancient stories and, and we're trying to determine the why, uh, I just want to be honest and, and say that I'm giving you opinion on this. Um, I, I, I could be wrong. Uh, if you look at the nations that God drove out ahead of, of uh, Israel in the Promised Land, the Canaanite nations, seven specific nations, and I don't have the scriptural references right here at my fingertips, but um, God named those nations and he named their sins and uh, and, and gave us some insight into uh, the sins that he considers to be intolerable, uh, that are an affront to his nature, his nature as a as a holy, uh, pure God. Uh, there are some sins that are uh, what we call perversion. Perversion is a twisting. Uh, we are we're created in the image of God. We are to reflect the nature of God. And uh, uh, we are created to be uh, the world's point of contact with God, if you please. Uh, when, uh, as far as the physical, that God has no physical face for the world to see. We as believers represent uh, God to the world. We are the body of Christ, Scripture says. Um, and so there are some things that so pervert and twist the nature of God himself, um, that it's an offense to God for that which is created in his image to represent him in such a way. Um, these things are called abomination to God. And there are there are multiple words in the Hebrew that are translated abomination in, in English and uh, in other languages. But um, there's one particular word that's used uh, and, and I'm not a, I don't speak Hebrew, and so uh, you'll forgive me if I mispronounce words, uh, but totabah is the term that is used, uh, and again, this is off the top of my head, research done some time ago, so forgive me if I get any details wrong. Um, but it's, it's a term that is translated abomination in situations of uh, moral perversity. Uh, it's not just that something is unclean, physically unclean or ceremonially unclean as certain types of animals were, et cetera. But uh, the, the term is used specifically in regards to homosexuality. It's even used in regards to a woman wearing that which pertained to the man. And that's abomination to the Lord in Deuteronomy 22. Five. That's the word tilibah. And it, 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 it has uh, so much deeper meaning than just unclean. It literally uh, makes him nauseated. Um, and again, because of the misrepresentation, the perversity, the twisting of the image of God that man is projecting. And that's why those sins are so severely and harshly punished by God, sins such as homosexuality. Uh, we don't really see that being the prevailing sin of, of Nineveh. Now, um, if you do read in the prophetic writings, you'll see that the, uh, the, the Ninevites uh, are, are portrayed as being sexually lustful individuals, um, but they're they're uh, also portrayed as as engaging that lust 
in a way that is not against nature. It's it's men with women. Um, and so the particular sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, their their sexual perversion is the the same sex attraction, the perversion of God's perfect image, uh, which ultimately will be fulfilled in uh, between Christ and the church, the church being the bride of Christ, the church being portrayed as a female uh, uh, organism. Uh, and so uh, the the twisting of sexual identity, gender identity, seems to be an area that, that God simply uh, uh, considers to be beyond the pale. Yeah. So... And I agree with all that. I think that, and again, this is my opinion. I think that, um, so what we understand about God is that he gives everybody an opportunity to find repentance. He said, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, and if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means that yesterday he still is the same way. So, there had to have been an opportunity in the lives of those in Sodom and Gomorrah to have repented. Yes, and I think we see that in Scripture, because, but by virtue of the fact that the man that the Bible calls righteous Lot lived in that city. And not only lived in that city, but rose to a place of prominence where we find him sitting in the gate as a judge of that city. Um, and so they have the presence of righteousness in their midst. We don't know much about Lot. We know he didn't end well, certainly didn't end well. But for him to have been called righteous Lot um, certainly gives us room to, to surmise that he would have spoken of uh, the true God at some point and, and expressed uh, the feelings and, uh, and the views of that God. They had a witness. Uh, it certainly was not as though the city never had a witness. Right. Well, Pastor Nix, we appreciate your time. And uh, this was a tremendous study. Uh, I'm very excited about it. And uh, so, you know, we definitely appreciate the time uh, that you've invested in the Apostolic Theory podcast. Uh, we appreciate you very much. Um, if you have not read his book, uh, Theology for the Rest of Us, he has several other resources uh, he didn't really mention. Um, well, hey, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about the uh, uh, other books that you've written? Absolutely. Um, a couple that I think would be helpful to, to folks who are interested in uh, uh, the study of theology, one, of course, being Theology for the Rest of Us, which is a comprehensive look at uh at biblical theology, there's one area that I don't touch on in that in, in that book, and that is the area of eschatology. Um, simply because I, I just uh, I defer to men who uh, are much more learned than I in the area of eschatology. Uh, I uh, I believe the Lord Jesus is coming back uh, when I don't know. I I believe uh, everything the Bible says. I just uh, uh, I'm in the camp of those who will, who will wait and see when it happens, and I'm expecting his return at any time. But other than that, uh, we try to cover the major doctrines of the Bible. There, uh, 
I have another smaller book called Distinctive Doctrines of the Apostolic Church. It is written at a level for uh, unbelievers or new converts. And really, it was born from a series of Bible studies that I had taught that I just put together into a book. Um, in the back, I have a little position paper uh, on uh, on the issue of baptizing people who are, are not legally married, just because I had run into a lot of questions about that as a missionary overseas and even here in the States. And so uh, I included a little paper there with, with some, some Bible about that. Uh, and then I have another book that is not theological in nature. It's called Getting Your Voice to Shake, and it's a, it's a book on intercultural communication. Um, I, I feel like it's important for apostolics, even though it's not written as a Christian book. It's more of a, a just a general textbook on intercultural communication, but because I believe that uh, the church is facing so many opportunities uh, today to reach people from around the world right here in America. Um, we've all become missionaries, but uh, in order to, to effectively reach those individuals from other cultures, we have to learn how to communicate across cultural lines. And uh, so that's what that little book is about. It's, it's a quick read, but uh, got a lot of good feedback on it, folks that, that felt like it helped them to, uh, to better relate to people from other cultures. So those are a couple that I would, that I would mention. Perfect. So, uh, if you don't have those books, I suggest you get yourself copies of them. I believe they are available right on Amazon. Uh, am I correct? That's correct. That's the only place that they're available is on Amazon. So uh, get yourself a copy on Amazon. Um, and uh, we appreciate your time, Pastor Nix. Let me just make one little correction there. I said that the only place I believe the, uh, the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship Bookstore also carries uh, some of those books. All right. So, get it on Amazon or the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship Bookstore. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, we appreciate you. We're so thankful that you uh, took the time to uh, join us on Apostolic Theory and give us some insight into uh, theology and the importance thereof. Well, thank you, Brother Cooper, for having me. It was a real pleasure to be on, on the podcast. This podcast is made possible because of listeners like you who are willing to bridge the gap. We now have a sponsorship program on our Anchor website in which you can become a monthly sponsor of $1, $5, or $10 a month. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook.